Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to, of course, get you ready for the holy season of Lent. And uh, I think we have this holy habit. I think a lot of us uh, like to uh, pick something to give up during Lent, and other uh, individuals love to do something extra. So I will leave it up to your discretion, but I think... Uh, you know, I think one thing we'd like to do is hopefully turn away from some of our some of our sinful habits. And um, and again, I think I'll have Fulton Sheen speak on the topic of sin today. Uh, he'll give us a catechism lesson on that topic. And I'll also share with you uh, again one of his television shows, um, uh, a beautiful recording. Uh, titled The Inferiority Complex. And uh, sometimes many of us struggle with an inferiority complex, but uh, Fulton Sheen will explain it in the way that he does best. And so I know you'll be looking forward to that. And so I want to, of course, greet our listeners um, all over the world, uh, those uh, tuning in to Radio Maria USA and Radio Maria Canada. Uh, Our good friends in the Philippines have joined us on Radio Maria Philippines and, of course, Radio Maria Australia. Uh, not to forget about them. And, of course, the uh, the blessing of the Irish. And we have our friends listening today on Radio Maria Ireland. So uh, we are trying to stretch out uh, all over the world as best we can. And so, uh, again, thank you for joining uh, this beautiful Radio Maria family. And so we'll begin uh, with Fulton Sheen giving us a reflection on the inferiority complex. And, um, again, hopefully we will all be better after this uh, short segment. Uh, Please enjoy. Friends, a few years ago I was in the back of the main altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral here in New York one morning, making my Thanksgiving after Mass. Some gentleman came up to me and he said, Father, he said, I commute every morning into New York City from Westchester, and I go to communion every morning. Naturally, I come in fasting. But he said, this morning my conscience is a bit troubled. There is someone on the radio whom I positively cannot stand. He drives me crazy. And that's Monsignor Sheen. (laughs) So he said, this morning on the train I was talking to a few gentlemen and I spoke very severely and critically about him. Now, if you think that that is serious, will you please hear my confession? Otherwise, we'll just skip it. Well, I said, no, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I said, I share your opinion. (laughs) And there are moments when I condemn him a thousand times more than you do. And I commended him for his uh, piety of coming in every morning, 
communion. We talked together for about ten minutes. As he left, he patted me on the shoulder and he said, My, it sure is wonderful to meet a nice priest like you. <laughs> I did not tell him who I was. Maybe he since discovered it. But in any case, we always have to be ready for some kind of humiliation. And that brings up the question as to whether or not we are suffering from an inferiority complex when such things happen. Would you be interested in hearing about inferiority complexes tonight? The inferiority complex was given to the world by a psychologist with the name of Alfred Adler. And it's easy enough to understand. The inferiority complex reduces itself to these principles. Number one, everyone is anxious to achieve superiority and has a drive towards superiority. Two, he does not always achieve it. When he does not achieve it, he sometimes will compensate for it by a substitute behavior in which there is still a drive for superiority. And this indirect way of achieving it is what he calls an inferiority complex. Now, there can be various kinds of inferiority complexes. For example, there can be the physical. Namely, a, a woman is too fat and she feels very inferior around thin women. I heard of a woman, that kind, who went to a gymnasium and the instructor said she would have to chin herself 20 times a day and she said, which chin? <laughs> And then there is the social inferiority, for example, to the little girl who says, Mama, why do I always have to wear overalls? And the other girls can wear overalls for fun. <laughs> then there's the economic inferiority of having a Chevrolet in a Buick neighborhood. <laughs> or else having been born on the other side of the tracks. Now, let me show you how the inferiority complex is supposed to work. I'm going to tell it to you in the form of a parable. It's about a muskrat coat that had an inferiority complex to be a mink. <laughs> and he showed it, first of all, by having a very expensive silk lining. And the initials were embroidered on the inside of the silk lining. And then this muskrat coat had the sleeves rolled back because it looked more like a mink that particular way. Always wore a price tag in the back. A 7,500 genuine ranch mink. And a light to parade, of course, always on, on Fifth Avenue in company with other minks. And then when winter came, always went into cold storage with mink coats. Never would go to a cheap storage where there were muskrat coats. But the poor muskrat had his difficulties, of course despite the fact that he wore mink perfume all the time. He tried to keep up with the minks. He knew that minks were rather hardy and that you could sit on a mink. And so he loved to be sat on, just to prove he was a mink. But he couldn't take it. It told in the end. And he stayed away from all movie houses because he was afraid of sitting next to a muskrat coat and being recognized. <laughs> so he began to worry more and more with this inferiority. 
that he had, and he went to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist put the muskrat out on a couch and began asking all kinds of Freudian questions. And the psychiatrist said, you know the trouble with you? Your mother was frightened by a mink. <laughs> and then the psychiatrist uh, finally told the, uh, the poor muskrat coat that he would have to be given a shock treatment. And the shock treatment consisted of the muskrat being put into a cabinet with minks. And do you know what the minks said one to another? I smell a rat. <laughs> well, they got so angry, they pulled all of the hair out of the muskrat. And he never was any better. You know what happened to him? He walked the streets of New York saying he was the only bald mink in New York. <laughs> Incurable inferiority complex. Now, that's what happens to muskrats. Now, let's find out what happens to human beings. A human being can play his superiority either direct or he can play his superiority indirectly. Play it straight or play it crooked. If a one has an undue sense of superiority and plays it straight, becomes the balloon type. Then the indirect are of various kinds. For example, there are the dreamers, There are the worm eaters. They are very interesting, the worm eaters. <laughs> and then there are a peculiar kind of animal called, now I'm spelling this correctly, the tail-bearing animal. First way of showing superiority is directly, in which one is constantly using the pronoun I, affirming his ego, asserting his own will. Take, for example, Russia. Russia is a beautiful example of uh, a direct love of superiority. Russia knows, for example, that industrially it cannot keep a pace with the United States. That is why Russia covers up its sense of inferiority by saying that they invented everything. Hence, when Bashinsky, Gromyko, Malik go, ba go back, they always bring back radios and, and admirals and refrigerators and everything else. How else could they invent these things unless they brought them back? <laughs> now, you take, for example, a man like Bashinsky of the United Nations. Bashinsky is an educated man. He is not like some of the younger barbarians that were trained under communism. He belongs to the czarist culture. He knows the classics. Vyshinsky knows very well, for example, that there are millions and millions of people enslaved in Russia. So he has a sense of inferiority in relationship to the Western world. That is why whenever he gets up in the United Nations, he always accuses the Western nations, and in particular the United States, of being a slave nation. That's the way he covers up his sense of inferiority. Then the director also those who are very loud, the loud mouths that come into a room, uh, shouting and shrieking, they're the kind that always shake hands with you up to the elbows. Beware of that kind of a man. In other words, here I am. Then they wear loud clothes. I think the fondness today for loud shirts is, a, is an evidence of the desire to be seen and heard. It's craving for superiority. Men wear socks today that are so loud their feet never go to sleep. 
Now, the, the indirect type of, uh, of superiority, first of all, there are the dreamers. They are unable to achieve superiority in real life. So they live in a world of fantasy in which they believe themselves superior. Take, for example, the boy who gets sick just before examination time. His fantasy is that if he hadn't been sick, he would have passed the examination. <laughs> and there's also this particular group that is, has uh, had a particular fascination for me. I've always noticed that many of the libraries in the universities of the United States have been given by men who hardly ever went beyond the seventh or eighth grade. Ever noticed that? Why is that? They have a sense of inferiority about culture and education, so they endow a library. See how educated I am? <laughs> there was one man who made a fortune after he invented dynamite. Made it possible to make wars more terrible than ever before. He constructed these plants to build dynamite throughout the world. And he had a sense of inferiority of all the harm, actual and possible, that had been done and could be done. And so he gave us the Nobel Peace Prize. That was Mr. Nobel. Then in addition to that, there are also the worm eaters. The worm eaters cover up their desire for inferiority by minimizing themselves. They're so humble, nobody loves me. <laughs> They're always going out in the garden to eat woolly worms. <laughs> they love to go into the doghouse. And they're proud of being in a doghouse, Mark. And so they say, well, it's all right. Pay no attention to me. I'm ready to die. Nobody cares. <laughs> the communists are worm eaters. The communists love to be put in jail. Then they can say, see, I'm a hero. And then beyond the worm eaters, they're are the tail-bearing animals. They are those who have a fine sense of rumor. <laughs> they give everybody the benefit of the dirt. <laughs> They're never happy until they can get something on somebody. And then they whispered around. And thus they make themselves superior to others by pointing out the vices and the inferiority of others. Now, such are ways in which people manifest their superiority. What are we to think of this inferiority complex? As you can readily see, it's not an inferiority complex. It's a superiority complex. That's what it is. It isn't anything new. Adler has become very popular on account of coining the words. But we know it under another name. This is what that sense of inferiority is. It is actually the sin of pride. Pride is an undue estimation an inordinate esteem of one's own excellence. And what has to be conquered is not inferiority, but superiority. 
There's much more in Thomas Aquinas on the superiority complex than there is in Adler on the inferiority complex. As a matter of fact, Thomas Aquinas shows 12 distinct forms of the superiority complex. Now, why do people today suffer from what Adler calls an inferiority complex? In other words, in our language, why do they suffer from pride? Well, it's simply because they've cut themselves off from their source. They've denied any relationship whatever to God, so they make themselves little gods. They elevate their conditioned character into that of an absolute. So they go around as actually as carbon paper calling themselves an original. <laughs> and they say, see, nobody made me. I'm my own author, I'm my own law, I'm my own will, I'm my own redeemer, I'm my own savior. And you say to them, yes, but you have no signature. Who made you? And then they get mad when you ask them. Or they're like a pendulum. A pendulum in a clock is free to swing so long as it is attached to the clock. But once it becomes detached from the clock, it's no longer free to swing. Now, modern man is like this pendulum that is detached from the clock. He's alienated himself from his God. And he says, oh yes, I can swing. Pick me up in your hand and see. And when we pick him up in our hands, we see how dictators are made. When people lose their sense of responsibility, lower their consciousness of personality, forget the bonds that tied them to their maker, then they become mere things, and it is not long until a dictator comes along, picks them up, and bends them to his own will. That is how socialism is made. What's the cure for this unhappiness that comes from people being so proud and vain and egotistic? Well, a cure is to be found, actually, in the virtue of humility. You never hear anything about humility anymore. <laughs> oh, yes, right, you do. I said that so innocent. <laughs> That's the price I have to pay for spending only two minutes a day on a newspaper. But up until then, there wasn't much heard about humility. <laughs> and people think humility means a submissiveness, a passiveness, a willingness to be walked on, or a desire constantly to live in a doghouse. No, that's not the meaning of humility. Humility is a virtue by which we recognize ourselves as we really are. Not as we would like to be in the eyes of the public, not as our press notices say we are, but as we are when we examine our conscience. Now, that isn't too difficult to understand. In any work, there are two things to be considered. First of all, the talent, and secondly, the limitations of the talent. First of all, a man may have a talent as a carpenter. That is to say, he has a capacity to work with wood. 
But if he's a humble man, he will recognize that he has certain limitations and he is not a watchmaker. A scientist, for example, has a talent. If he's a humble man, he'll be proud of the talent of being able to read the universe in terms of mathematics. But if he's a humble man, too, he'll recognize his limitations and not tell us his idea of God unless he's a theologian. Take, for example, an angel. If my angel has humility, well, first of all, you recognize that he has a talent for cleaning blackboards. <laughs> and then you recognize that he has no talent whatever for reading Karl Marx. That's why in the little cartoon that we did in, in the series last year, we have him with the book of Karl Marx, and Karl Marx is upside down. <laughs> now, take, for example, ourselves. Here we are, out on a stage, talking to you on television. Would uh, I be humble if I said, oh, I can't talk, I, I don't know how to give ideas, I have no words, and, and, uh, and there, there are, there are hundreds. There are a hundred million other people in the United States who could do this better than I can. No. I have a certain talent for it. The good Lord has blessed me. He's given me an opportunity for education. He's given me the gift of expressing ideas fairly, clearly, and therefore I must thank him for it. But I'll also recognize now my limitations. Now, now, now I'll not come out here and dance. <laughs> I've never danced in my life. And I can promise you one thing, you'll never hear me sing. Neither will I come out here, for example, and, and try to be a comedian. If there's anything funny, it'll be to illustrate a point. But not just to be funny for the sake of being funny, because I have no capacity for that. And therefore, the humble beings will be those who will recognize themselves as they really are and be very humble before God because they know they're so undeserving of his goodness and any gifts that he may have given us. And we will recognize, too, that whatever talent we have, we will use it to the best of our abilities. There are other talents which we do not have. We will not be able to use. And we will not have an inferiority complex about it. One who can sing will not try to be a dancer and so forth. Then in relationship to our neighbor, humility will show up by always looking for what is best in the neighbor and always looking for what is worst in ourselves. Then we will understand the inspiration of all humility, namely the God-man who came to this earth and the night before he died, knelt down, took a basin and the towel, girded himself and washed the feet of his own apostles. Not even divinity precluded humility. And his followers will never suffer from what is called an inferiority complex. For in the language of John the Baptist, in the face of him, they will say, I must decrease. He must increase. Heaven is very high. 
The gate to it is very low. Humidity is the condition of entering it. Bye now. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that first reflection from Archbishop Sheen uh, on the topic of inferiority complex. But I think what I really took away from that lesson was the need to practice the virtue of humility. And I know that's a big ask for a lot of us to be humble, uh, but there is this litany of humility that um, you can look up on the internet, and it's um, challenging, I think the is the word I'd like to use. It's very challenging because it asks us to, um, again, have a grace to and a desire to uh, not be preferred, um, uh, to not be honored, uh, to not be consulted, um, a grace to uh, be forgotten and sometimes ridiculed. So, again, it's a, a, a difficult prayer for many of us to pray, but I think it's necessary, and this is what our Archbishop Sheen was really trying to say to us. Practice the virtue of humility, and uh, maybe we can do that during the season of Lent, is uh, practice some of the virtues. And so... Maybe we could add that to our list of uh, things to do for the season of Lent. And, of course, uh, Fulton Sheen uh, was encouraging us to do an examination of conscience each day and to really look at those opportunities that uh, we missed uh, during the day uh, to be humble and to imitate our blessed Lord. And, uh, of course, he mentioned how our blessed Lord... Um, on Holy Thursday, wash the feet of his disciples. And so uh, we too can imitate our blessed Lord in some humble acts of service to uh, either our family or for our fellow man. So uh, just a few ideas. All right, we will now uh, change to our catechism um, uh, part of our program. I like to say our Sunday school. I think of how blessed we are to have this great teacher in Fulton Sheen uh, teaching us his 50-part uh, series. Um, again, a beautiful catechism that he compiled in 1965, and so uh, many people are following this catechism. And so we're going to um, go through a lesson on sin. And so uh, may I just invite you now just to sit back and enjoy uh, this reflection from the Venerable Sheen on the topic of sin. And so again, a, a great way for us to get ready for the season of Lent. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. The three previous sacraments discussed were baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. All of them refer to a life above the physical, namely the participation of the divine life. By baptism we are born to it, by confirmation we grow into it and accept the full responsibilities of union with our Lord. By the Eucharist and in the Eucharist, our union with him reaches its peak and its ecstasy. Now we come to another sacrament which represents a fall away from that divine life, namely the sacrament of penance or confession. 
It is a sacrament which refers to the sins that have been committed after baptism. It is the great sacrament of the mercy of God. And if we may use the word, it is an indication how, of how very realistic God is. Once we are born to divine life, we should live in it. But practically some fall away, lightly or seriously. God, therefore, in his mercy, has instituted the sacrament by which the sins committed after baptism may be remitted. No human being could ever have thought of this sacrament, for it is something like the resurrection. We rise after we are dead. It is a journey back again to God. It enables us to get rid of infections before they become chronic diseases and epidemics. It is not an unpleasant and necessary sacrament. It is not to be viewed merely as a humiliation. It is the inflowing of God's mercy, an opportunity for the increase of the grace of Calvary. It is a medicine for the soul, a healing of our wounds, a homecoming, an undoing of the past, an opportunity to get a fresh start in life, another bath, a kind of secondary baptism. Sometimes a reconciliation is sweeter than an unbroken friendship. And it certainly is true that if we had never sinned, we never could call Christ. Savior. It is the sacrament also which restores us again to the fellowship of the church, to God's community, to his kahal, to his mystical body. But before we can tell you about that sacrament, we must introduce the word sin. George Bernard Shaw once said, that the modern man is too busy to think about his sins. Perhaps Shaw should have said that the modern man keeps nervously busy so he will not think about his sins. Every sinner is an escapist, just as Adam was when he hid from God. The sins we're going to talk about now are not original sin, but actual or personal sins. Remember, we've already spoken about original sin, and we said that it was not personal. We are not personally responsible for original sin. It is a sin of human nature. It is ours simply because we are the descendants of Adam. We are involved in it very much like a citizen is involved in a country whose head has declared war. Oh yes, it left us weak. Gave us even a tendency towards sin. But the tendency or the inclination to sin is not sin. As a result of it, it became possible for us 
to turn sex into lust, thirst into intemperance and alcoholism, hunger into gluttony, and prudence into avarice. Through that sin, we became almost like those who were given the inheritance of a great estate, but with all of its mortgages too. Our nature is spoiled before we received it. That for original sin. Now we come to the sins for which we are personally responsible. They are sometimes called actual sins. Why is sin possible? Because we are free. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. You can tell a man he ought to do something, but in his will he can resist. Sin lies in the abuse of freedom. It has something to do with a wrong or an evil choice. In fact, we never sin without the will. We can take two attitudes toward freedom, both of which are wrong. We can exaggerate human freedom. We can minimize it. We can put too much stress on it and also too little. We can, first of all, exaggerate freedom. We do this when we deny that we are the creatures of God and subject to his law. This was the essence of the temptation of the devil to our first parents. He said, you will be likened to gods. In other words, you will not be creatures, you will be creators. We exaggerate freedom when we say, I love myself, my own will. I am my own law. I determine what is right and wrong. I shall treat my neighbor as an inferior, as a plaything for my pleasure, as a means to my profit. I am the end of my own existence. That is the abuse of freedom you find in those who live without God. But on the other hand, sin is possible because we minimize freedom. This comes about when we deny there is any such thing as guilt. We minimize freedom when we say that all guilt is morbidity. It is sickness. It is a psychological complex. Or guilt is just a hangover from religious and family and moral taboos. Those who minimize freedom, of course, always expect to be praised when they are good. But when they do evil, they say... Oh, no, it really is not my fault. I was under a compulsion. 
That is a very handy word. It denies responsibility. Nobody is bad. No one is a juvenile delinquent. They are only sick. You get too fat, you can't help it. You are a compulsive eater. You drink too much, you can't help it. You are a compulsive drinker. You steal, you can't help it. You are a compulsive thief. You see behind that word and behind all other escapes, there is the assumption that I am determined. I am determined by environment. I am determined by my grandparents. I am determined by something inside or outside of myself. Now this is serious. I mean this denial of guilt. Indeed, there are some manifestations of guilt that are morbid. But even the morbid manifestations of guilt, such as the psychiatrists deal with, do not necessarily prove that there was no real guilt at the base of it. When Lady Macbeth washed her hands every 15 minutes, we have a morbid manifestation of guilt. But there was real guilt that prompted that morbidity. Namely, the murder of the king in which she was involved. In the past, it was customary for a man to blame someone outside of himself. Economics, politics, bad environment, poverty, society, grade B milk, insufficient playgrounds, in all instances, guilt was transferred from the individual outside of himself. One of the new excuses is to say that no, a man is not guilty at all. The fault is not in the stars, but wholly in our unconsciousness. We cannot help being the way we are. Some very serious effects follow from this denial of personal guilt. The aim of it, as you see, is to make everybody nice. The worst sinners are nice people. But by denying sin, they make cure, the cure of sin, impossible. Sin is very serious, but it is more serious to deny sin. If the blind deny that there is any such thing as vision, how shall they ever see? If the deaf deny there is any such thing as hearing, what chance is there of being cured of their deafness? 
so too by the mere fact that we deny sin, we make the forgiveness of sins impossible. That is why those who very often deny sin become scandal mongers, talebearers, and hypercritics, because they have to project their real guilt outside of themselves to others. And this gives them also a great illusion of goodness. It will be found generally true that the increase of fault-finding is in direct ratio and proportion to the denial of sin. In some persons, sin works like a cancer, undermining and destroying the character for a long time without any visible effects. And when the disease becomes manifest, it has progressed so far that some souls give up hope, which indeed they should not. Then there comes despair. A despair is something that demands the infinite. Animals never despair, simply because they do not know the infinite. Seldom will a man openly revolt against the infinite. And if he has revolted and sinned and still does not accept the fact, he tries to minimize the gravity of his sin by excuses, just as Cain did. That is why I say modern man has lost the understanding of the very name of sin. He puts the blame on someone else, on his spouse, his work, his friends, on tensions. And sometimes, by ignoring the real guilt that is there, he may become either a psychotic or a neurotic. It is awful when despair takes possession of souls. Then a sinner does not realize that each present sin is adding to thousands of other sins. Traveling at 70 miles an hour in an automobile is already an excessive speed. But if 20 more miles an hour are added, the danger mounts. Unrepented sins beget new sins. And the dizzying total brings despair. And the soul will say, I'm too far gone. The drunkard becomes afraid of a sober day because that sober day will make him see his state as he really is. The greater the depression, the more a sinner needs to escape from it through further sins until he cries out with Macbeth in his despair, I had lived a blessed time. For from this instant, there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys. Renown and grace is dead. And this despair has another effect, too. It often turns into fanaticism against religion and morality. 
man who has fallen away from the spiritual order will hate it. Because religion is a reminder of his guilt. Husbands who are unfaithful to their wives will beat their wives in order to justify themselves. Some souls reach a point where, like Nietzsche, they want to increase evil until all distinction between right and wrong are blotted out. Then they can sin with impunity and say with Nietzsche, Evil, be thou my good. Expediency can now replace morality. Cruelty becomes justice. Lust becomes love. Sin multiplies in such a soul until it becomes the permanent state of Satan. Oh, he's not happy. The Seneca said every guilty person is his own hangman. And as Shakespeare said, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Now what are we to do in the face of this sin? Continue to deny it? Is it not much better to try to define it and understand it? Thus far, If we are clear, we have indicated that sin is not a manifestation of animal instincts. It is not an interruption of the subconscious. It is not something which happens because we were loved too little by a grandmother or loved too much by a grandfather. It is an act of freedom by which we throw the whole harmonious nature out of joint. It is not just self-interest because that is good, but it is rather the affirmation of self at all costs. Here we are assuming the very elementary concept of sin, so let us begin with some analogies from the physical and biological order. Sin in general is disobedience to the law of God. The laws of God are in the physical universe. Suppose someone builds a skyscraper out of plumb. The building will not stand because he refused to respect the law of gravitation because he disregarded it. The law of gravitation, as it were, throws the building down. In the broad sense of the word, he sinned against the physical law. Now come to a higher level, common sense. Common sense is also a reflection of the divine law. Suppose I take my fist and drive it through a window pane. I am free to do it. But when I do it, I punish myself. My hand is cut and bleeding. I have violated a law. And I see the consequences. Go into the biological order. Why does anything die? It dies because there is a domination of the lower order over the higher order. When do plants die? 
when the lower order, the chemical order, begins to dominate the plant life. Fire kills a plant. Fire belongs to the lower order. How can an animal die? It can die through the domination of the plant life over the animal life. For example, through poisonous plants. How does the body of man die? By the gradual, very often, the gradual burning away and oxidation of the animal tissues and also by lower forms of life getting inside of man and destroying his life. All right, death then in the natural order is the domination of a lower order over a higher order. When does the soul die? Whenever there is the domination of the lower order over the higher order, whenever there is the domination of the ego over the community, of flesh over the spirit, of time over eternity, of the body over the soul, then there is death, and that death we call sin. That is why Scripture equates death in the biological order and sin in the moral order. The wages of sin is death. Sin, therefore, is a deliberate violation of the law of God. If you buy an electric coffee pot, you will find instructions. Putting it in the form of a commandment, the instructions may read, Put not the plug into the electric current when thy pot is empty. But suppose you say, Why should anybody tell me what to do? He's violating my constitutional rights. When you say that, you forget that the manufacturer of that coffee pot gave you instructions in order that you might get a perfect use out of it. And when God made us, he gave us certain laws, not in order to destroy our freedom, but in order that we might perfect ourselves. And when we violate those laws, we hurt ourselves. We break a relationship. That is why in the parable of the prodigal son, the father said to the prodigal, he was dead. Now he is alive. What then is sin for the Christian? It is the breaking of a personal relationship. For those who are in the state of grace, it is a kind of crucifixion. It is the wounding and the hurting of the one we love. Why therefore are we sorry for sins? Not because we have broken a contract, not just because we've broken a law, but because we have hurt someone that we love. And it is only when we discover God, and above all his mercy in Christ, that we begin to understand sin fully. In other words, it takes love in order to make us understand sin. That seems strange, but it is true. And regardless of how great the sin is, there is always mercy. To be a sinner is our distress. But to know that we are a sinner is our hope. And the hope is the sacrament of penance. God love.
Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, again, these catechism lessons, I believe, are second to none. Uh, Again, how Fulton Sheen takes the time and, of course, details, um, you know, what is contained in each sacrament. And uh, this whole idea of understanding sin, and uh, next week we'll talk about uh, penance. Uh, These are great uh, things to review because, you know, in all honesty, many of us stopped uh, receiving uh, catechetical instructions when we left school. And um, so many of us haven't taken a refresher course in years. And so this is great how uh, Fulton Sheen, even today, can teach us the faith. And so uh, may I encourage you to, uh, you know, download the Sheen Catechism, and you can find it uh, on the website that we put together called bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, when you go into bishopsheentoday.com, you'll find uh, hundreds of YouTube videos that you can watch hours and hours of Fulton Sheen's television broadcast and his many lectures. Uh, there's audio recordings you can download, uh, of course, and there's a great um, catalog of his books uh, that you can purchase from uh, various retailers and vendors. And so, again, just a great resource uh, library there at uh, Bishop Sheen today. And if you just Google search uh, the Sheen Catechism, you will find it um, come up, and of course, then you could uh, download the lessons and enjoy them at uh, your leisure. So, again, a uh, labor of love we put together back in the year 2012, a website called bishopsheentoday.com. All right, may I invite you to uh, tell a friend about the Bishop Sheen Presents, and I uh, look forward to coming back next week. And uh, again, our Radio Maria family continues to grow, and so I would uh, ask you to pray that uh, we can reach more souls for Christ. And so, uh, of course, may I end this broadcast as I try to, uh, with every one that I've done over the years, is I love that beautiful passage from the book of Numbers, and that uh, passage that uh, really just encourages us to uh, just be blessed by our Lord. And it's that uh, great uh, uh, scripture verse that the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. And I know many of our listeners have a devotion to the holy face of Jesus. And uh, may I encourage you to, uh, if you don't practice that devotion uh, to the holy face, to um, practice it. Uh, Maybe, of course, find a a picture of the holy face and put it into your uh, life. And uh, especially during this season of Lent, um, uh, put a crucifix on your desk, uh, in areas where you can hold the crucifix and meditate on our Lord's great love for us, dying on the cross. And so the holy face and, of course, a beautiful crucifix, uh, two uh, necessary items, I believe, during the season of Lent and in all our lives to draw closer to Christ. My dear friends, uh, again, I want to thank you for joining me. And uh, I do read all of your mail, and uh, I do respond to emails. Um, People drop me a line at the website bishopsheentoday.com. And I was asked uh, uh, by someone what my favorite uh, Bishop Sheen quote is. And there's many Bishop Sheen quotes on the Internet. Uh, But I would say that my favorite quote is uh, one from 1949 in the book Peace of Soul. 
where Fulton Sheen said, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. And I really believe that to be true. Unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. Uh, We need to go out and try to save some souls uh, and bring souls to Christ, but especially work on our own soul and that uh, it too would be saved. And so, uh, again, I leave that with you. Unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. Look forward to seeing you again next week. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.